everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is the show, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? The eye candy. The one. I'm doing fantastic, Mark. As well, you should be. So, we're going to mix things up and talk about board games this week, but before we do, I just have a minor apology for last week's Masterpiece Theater, because it was pointed out to me, and in all sincerity, that I gave a spoiler to an unrelated film. While talking about Fast X, normally in the context of review, you might expect us to spoil some details. Of course, in Fast X, the big spoiler is it's about family. And I I did make a comment about Across the Spider-Verse. Now, number one, if you haven't listened to last week's Masterpiece Theater, be warned, there's a minor unintentional spoiler. But it, it casts an interesting question about what constitutes a spoiler, because this is something I knew going into the film, despite the fact that I hate spoilers. And as a consequence, I didn't conceive of it as a spoiler. Anyway. It's a, it's a complicated matter, I, but that I've, doesn't excuse my mistake. I've also talked about, I've also heard the spoiler many times as well when talked about. The, anyway, moving on. You mean the spoiler that Kaiser Soze can see dead people? Just so. Yeah, anyway. So, as I said, we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, the as-yet-unnamed retrospector of intro segment, The Aurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, and then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And finally, our topic. Our topic this week is... Credibility in crowdfunding. What makes for a credible crowdfunding campaign? What makes for a successful crowdfunding campaign? We criticize crowdfunding campaigns all the time. We probably will again this week. We're going to be talking about what we look for, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about what I think other people are looking for and why it confuses me. And it's completely unrelated. Nothing to do with anything that happened this week. No, no, no. no nothing related to anything that happened this week or in past weeks whatsoever. This is purely blue sky kind of conversation. Any suggestion that has anything to do with recent events is purely a phantom of your imagination. Do you see what I did there? I do. Yeah, okay. So, Walker, what did we review last year? We reviewed a game called The Contentious Emperor. Mm. Imperium The Contention. I think that was it. This is a 4X, loosely described as a space card game. I have pulled out Imperium The Contention many times since we reviewed it. It's flexible in player count flexible in player experience, flexible in experience with hobby games, and for anybody that is willing to tolerate a little bit of confrontation, it is absolutely a stellar product. This was designed by Gary Dworetsky and Contention Games. They have not reprinted it since then, despite lots of demands, because they've been extremely busy ever since picking up the Slay the Spire license, and that's what they've been up to. They allege... That after they're done with that, which should take, I don't know, what, seven years? I'm sure. They'll be working on a reprint slash an expansion, but there's already six highly asymmetric factions in Imperium the Contention, plus deck construction rules, plus an expansive solo campaign if you're so inclined. There's so much game in such a little box. I'm a massive fan of Imperium the Contention. It's a shame that more people don't get to play it. Yeah, the decks are large, so there's different chips you can choose from as they come out. They're going to come out in in different order as well, so that every game is going to play a little differently. You can try to you know, rush out and hold spots or hang back. and de- Anyway, lots of different strategies in the game. I really enjoy it. That is Imperium the Contention, never far from our hearts. Now onto the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we played Tapple. came out in 2012, if you can believe it. We've gone so long without playing Tapple. It's kind of, kind yeah. of hurts right here, deep, that we could have been playing Tapple all this time. It's a fantastic game with a cool physical element where it has all these different letters on a ring and you start smacking them down, sort of like slap it style. And you say the word of the category 
as when it's your turn and you start the timer again, it goes around really fast and there's debates whether the answers count and all of the fun stuff. Every time Tapple is hit and enjoyed. I will observe that in our most recent game, there are nominally easier categories and more difficult categories. And we've always been doing the more difficult categories by accident for our last round because we played several times in succession, as is the way of our tapling. Tapling. Is that the word? Anyway. And we picked one of the ostensibly easier categories, which was sports figures. And did we embarrass ourselves? Yes. <laughs> Despite the fact that you consume a non-trivial amount of association football and someone else at the table is a massive fan of Formula One. We did not acquit ourselves well in that category. Well, you see, you get stressed. <laughs> yeah. And there's yeah. pressure. And you're like... And so the the hand of Maradona came and closed your mouth effectively. Just so, just that, like that's that. like the one sports reference. That's, that's I know. pretty good. Okay, you I pulled got, that out. That was. Very I, nice. I'm glad you appreciated. The other thing you'll observe about our playings of Tapple, and I agree, this is an absolutely wonderful experience with a high toy factor and a very excellent tactile experience, is that uh, you seem to what's the word quail every time I hit the Tapple button. You mean smash into oblivion with pla piece, little piece of plastic flying? In I the have air. never. Okay, look. I have. I, have I ever Weird damaged grinding noises? You do not. That I is see ridiculous. The whole table overstatement. Shake. No, no, Walker. Had I ever damaged a board game component <laughs> no. by virtue of my overenthusiastic smacking, not I would completely all. understand. But look, it's a it's a it's a real time game where you smack a button to indicate that your turn is over. And I will also point out, on occasion, you have failed to press the button correctly and had to go back for a second try. It's true. So yes, I hit the button with authority, but it's how I like to play Tapple. Let me live my dream. I'll, I'll let you Tapple how you Tapple. It's a lifestyle choice. Thank you very much. I appreciate you recognizing it. I think, I think Tap is in... Never mind. Um, <laughs> so Tapple is put out by Point the taken. OP. Sadly, still uncredited. Who is this unsung genius who mostly ripped off a variety of other games <laughs> about selecting a category and thinking of instances that start with a certain letter? But anyway... Someone had the idea of putting it to a cool plastic toy. And that person deserves credit. Played another game of Undaunted Battle of Britain. Reviewed it last week. Still wanted to play more. I think that's all the testament you need to know. As we commented last week, or at least as I commented last week, Undaunted Battle of Britain is probably my favorite of the Undaunted series. I am looking forward to playing some of the uh, denser scenarios some more. But I will say that the sort of classic, stereotypical Battle of Britain, the Germans have some bombers and are going to try to bomb, go and bomb some things, and the British have fighter cover, and you have to do some trade-offs as the Germans between letting your fighter cover do something and, and your escorts protecting you versus just rushing the bombers as fast as possible. And similarly, the, the, the British have to be somewhat focused in terms of dealing with the, the bombers. It's great. I like it. It's gives a, a, a change of pace, a sort of built-in asymmetry to even the simpler scenarios in the Undaunted system. Now that the more complicated ones are more complicated. And as I constantly say, if after immediately reviewing a game and having played it several times in succession, I want to keep playing it some more, that is a testament to its quality. Also, though, I would like to add a personal appeal. I've said this in other venues. I would like to say it here. Mr. Benjamin and Thompson, please, slow down. Slow your roll. I mean, they're all great but I need a little more time to play all the scenarios. One can only play so many games. There's only so much Undaunted I can get through in a year, and you're producing it faster than I can play it. Please. It's all great. But please. That is Undaunted Battle of Britain by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. This is a review copy we got from the publisher Osprey Games, put out this year in 2023. You were nice enough to introduce us to a fantastic game called Oh No Volcano. 
This is a Target game designed by Phil Walker-Harding and put out by Buffalo Games. And it's very much a condensed version of Fireball Island in a way. You're moving your little climbers up a sort of pegboard, and at the end of every turn, you get to drop a marble, and it Plinko styles down, knocking climbers hither and yarn. <laughs> that is true. They do, they do tend to go flying. It's got great toy factor. It looks like a sort of plinko board, and you you know construct the little plastic board, and it's uh it, it's supposed to be a volcano, and you drop the little fiery marbles down, and they bounce around and dislodge people. I much preferred it with two. I will say this for two reasons. Number one, the blocking was more satisfying. In a multiplayer game, if someone's blocking the spots you need to get to in the volcano, you're like, eh, uh, uh, okay. But if in two player, it makes more sense because it's more targeted, it, it, it's more conscious. And number two, it took less time. I, I think it was. I think it overstayed its welcome a little bit. It wasn't terribly overlong. I think that Ono oh Volcano wants to be twenty to thirty minutes rather than about thirty to forty-five. I realize I'm splitting hairs here, but I am talking about a, a difference of roughly twenty to thirty percent in terms of overall game time. And uh, as I say, the, the primary appeal is of Toy Factor. I picked it up because it was designed by Phil Walker Harding. He of Baron Park and Llama Land fame. We should probably go back to those. Those are those are solid games. He's a very, very talented designer. And he's got a bunch of designs that are out in the mass market. And this is the one that looked the most toyetic to me. When I picked it up, it wasn't even in the Board Game Geek database. Since then, it was batted by somebody else. But as far as kids' games go, I think Ono Volcano is great. Yes, he, he didn't reach deep for this one. Uh, no, it's not... It it's not as arbitrary as you might think. So it's a card-based movement system. You have three different climbers, and the cards specify where you're going to climb. As you get knocked, knocked off, you get these gear cards, which are just flatly better, but they're publicly visible. So if you really wanted to start getting super clever about it, you might start worrying about that. And on top of that, there's a very simple system to, again toy factor, put these little mountain covers uh, above little pegs, which number one, protect your climbers, but number two, make it more difficult for them to move around if you put them right above their heads. And so there's a bit of trade-offs going on there. So as far as kids' games go, this is happily one that I would play. Most of the time when playing with children, I like to play dexterity games. That's, that's just how I roll. They tend to be very simple to explain, and we're all on the same level, more or less. But I would happily play Ono Volcano in the right context. It is sadly not a sort of crossover family hobby experience that I was hoping it might be, because I'm always on the lookout for Toy Factor games that have substance to them. And there's substance here, but eh, not quite enough, I don't think. So let's talk about Toy Factor that does have a little bit of substance, at least to me. This is The Siege of Rundar by Reiner Knizia, put out by Ludonova. And this is a cooperative deck-building dwarves trying to dig their way out of their fortress because they're on an onslaught by all these orcs coming in on four different sides of the fortress. So they're jumping the walls. You have to beat them back or else they're going to steal all your gold. All the while, you're digging through the caverns, unleashing goblins that are in your way, which might bring trolls, and there's catapults, and there's siege engines, and you're collecting resources to improve your deck. And I have to say, this is the first time we've won seen Siege of Rundar. I enjoy everything about it, except for there's this wonky setup board. But other than that, it's great. What do you mean wonky setup board? You know, the items. Does it like to be play on this side? Is it four plus? Are we supposed to be playing this way? Oh, sure. Because you did say it was harder with four, but man, did we ever like get the cards going? So I'm just, I'm just not sure. I think we got the right cards out, right? Because I would compare it to Spirit Island in this this specific way. The way you actually win Spirit Island is by generating fear. 
That is my position. I realize it's a controversial one. Everything else is a means to an end. And yeah, you destroy things, but mostly you destroy things either to generate fear or to prevent you from getting really hosed on the back end and or to satisfy the fear condition, which is to not have the certain kind of ability. Similarly, in Siege of Rundar, there's a lot going on, but it's all in service of digging. And we got a very, very solid digging capacity. This is the kind of cooperative game where specialization is strongly encouraged, both by virtue of how the hands work and both uh, by virtue of how cards work. And so we had a specialized digger. We had a specialized uh, combat dwarf. And oh my goodness, the murder that that dwarf did inflict on the orcs. Woof. It was almost a hate crime. And then we had other people specialized in largely in generating resources and taking care of whatever leftover effects needed to do, you know, ranged combat, stuff like that. I, I Okay, this is my favorite playing of Siege of Rundar thus far. I am very, very disappointed in it as a Reiner Knizia design for the simple reason that the least favorite aspect of the Siege of Rundar for me is the dice. Because when goblins pop out, when orcs show up, it is inevitable that they block an action you need to do. They serve as a roadblock, which is fine. That's just how co-op games tend to work. But to clear that roadblock, you must defeat them in combat. And the way that combat works is unalterable die rolls. And it's just very unknitzia like to me that there's nothing you can do to finesse the die rolls. It makes me wish also that the cards might have been a little bit more sophisticated. The way you get better cards isn't, you know, your starting cards say, okay, this is worth two points of movement or one point of digging. But you might get a better card that says, well, this will be worth two points of movement or three points of digging. That is an example of an amazing card. Well, we got one card that does automatic hits. Maybe if they did a little few, few more of those. Remember the torch? It was like, you know, two automatic hits. Maybe, you know what I mean? Like maybe plus two attack in one hit sure. on top of that, right? Well, let, let me contrast this with Ghost Stories, which structurally is very similar. It is a co-op game where monsters start flooding in and you've got some special abilities and it's your job to make sure that you survive the siege. It's a little bit different in that the victory condition is just surviving. You don't have to go progress any victory condition yourself. But in Ghost Stories, you can spend time and or actions to accumulate resources that serve as a backstop against dice rolls. I would love anything in Siege of Rundra that you do that, whether it's re-rolls, whether it's resources you could use for automatic hits, resources you could save up to get extra dice rather than just be at the mercy of whatever cards you happen to draw that round. Anything, anything. Anything that the doctor himself tends to show he can do in almost any other dice game that he puts out. And so it seems strange to me that this 90-minute co-op game, which is full of great stuff, and as you say, has a very solid toy factor by virtue of the fact that the board is this lovely castle, and the, the stones you have to dig out in order to win are literally these blocks that fill up a trench. It, it's great. There's a lot to like, even for someone who's not really pro-fantasy dwarves. But at the end of the day, you end up at these structures where you're just like, well, the only thing we can do now, collectively, is throw dice at this problem. We were fortunate on dice rolls overall, I think. But in every other playing of Siege of Rundar I've played, there have been these turns where it's like, all I can do this turn, literally the only thing I can do, is go and try to kill these orcs. Oh, the dice, the dice screwed me. Okay, my turn's done. That's not satisfying, and I wish there was something else going on. It's strange, because it's complex enough. It, it's not like it's it's parsimonious as a rule system. I just wish that there'd be some modification. I love everything but the dice, and the dice are central to much of what you end up doing in Siege of Rundar. That's my, that's my chief complaint. Well, it's right for, a, for an expansion, so maybe one day. Yeah, that's true. Good point. And that is The Siege of Rundar by Reiner Knizia. I get to show somebody Sakura Arms. 
this has been a good week for two-player games, honestly. And in terms of deck construction fighty games, Sacker Arms is absolutely at the top of my list and remains so. Because even for relatively inexperienced players, you get to play around with a card set and try out neat things. I was so pleased with how this player picked up Sacker Arms. It was amazing. He went from not knowing what any of the keywords did to about three rounds into the game, pulling off a combo that I'd never seen executed, and it was glorious. And the great thing about competitive games like Sacker Arms is, and I say this often about, about games of this ilk, is that sometimes games' clever play means that your opponent doesn't get to do anything, and it leads to a sense of frustration. It's like, oh, I can't... And as a rules explainer, of course, I've said this many times over the years, the worst thing you ever can, uh, feel like saying to another player is, no, you can't do that for the following reasons, even when it's true. Uh, but this was an instance of somebody finding a way to play a full power card, which is to say the kind of card that's the only thing you can do on your turn. And the card says, if you've already done damage this turn, this card becomes bonkers amazeballs. It's like, well, how do you manage to do damage outside your turn? And without my telling him anything, he looked at the tools available to him and said, oh, if I time this just right... And it worked, and it was great. It was lovely. I, it was honestly one of those things where, like, hats off, well done. And I really like Sacker Arms. I have yet to feel like I've I've mastered any of the goddesses. It's such a deep pool. The new level ninety nine games version. If you have all three boxes, it starts to get pretty expensive. But then you have eighteen goddesses to play around with, and you pick two, and every combination feels different. As I say, just exploring the space is, is is so wonderful. There are further goddesses available in the Japanese-only version. Level 99 has in the past asserted that once there are six, they will publish another box in order to bring things up to date. We'll see when and if that happens. I hope they do. That is Sacro Arms, designed by Backafire, published by Level 99 Games last year after successful crowdfunding. Well, we had a games day here in town because Dr. Handsome came home for a day. Yeah, Kingston became about 22% more handsome I for know. a day. Yeah, it was, it was that much handsome. That's what happens. Well, the two of you in the same room, it was difficult. I didn't know where to focus my eyes. That's true. I got to play Autobahn. It is one of my new favorite games. This is by Fabio Lubiano and Nestor Mangioni, and it's put out by Alley Cat Games, and it is sort of a historic game in quotation marks where you're building the Autobahn through the lifting of the Iron Curtain, and... Uh, you're delivering stuff. It's mostly of delivery because you really, yeah. Well, now that I have multiple plays, I feel as though the bonuses you get from the deliveries are essential. I try hmm. to do it just one way and realize that other people are getting more points just because they're getting more actions. One through, not only do is are the deliveries part of one of the end game goal trees, but you're picking up the tokens every time you do it. Plus, you're getting the bonus actions on the card as well, and those double up bonus actions really add up hmm. with I'm not saying it's the only part but I'm saying it's one of the things you should be doing while you're doing the other things sure I I was reminded I I was only there for the rules explanation or at least part of it and once again it reminded me of how excellent Audubon is as far as I'm concerned but the thing that what I was reminded of most most prominently one of the players at one point said oh, okay well what do I do and I was saying well I don't know. I'm, I'm usually bad at giving advice like that, but I say, you might want to do X. And then somebody else at the table, I believe, was the alpha gamer and said, no, 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 you really want to do Y first. And both of those were valid. And then I went off and said, well, look, here's the thing. 
all things being equal, you might want to start with X. But really, if you do Y first, X is going to be so much more uh, efficient. But really, if you do Z before Y, the Y becomes so much more efficient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I agree with you that having lots of trucks, or as we call them here in Canada, lorries, on the road will help you. That was a ridiculous joke. We don't call them lorries. We call them trucks. If you have more trucks on the road cycling through as quickly as possible, yeah, that's a great booster to the other things you're already doing. But again, I don't know off the top of my head if I would say that it's necessarily an end in itself much of the time. You have a fair amount of latitude in Audubon in terms of things you can pursue. And again, how efficient you get your core actions and what your core actions even look like, there's a fair degree of difference as to how you can pursue it. So I, I agree with you that... that I'm just know, saying because because the the moving of the trucks is free. It's a free action right. that happens at the end of the turn. So if you just can program it correctly, you're moving the trucks at no cost while you're doing all the other actions you want to do anyway. Right. Well, and what I'm saying is, on the face of it, from my plays of Audubon, it is possibly the case that fewer truck movements across more efficient gas stations might be preferable. Or, indeed, uh, fewer efficient gas stations, but more roads that you've built might like, you know, I, I'm saying that, yes, it's an important component and it can be determinative. I've just seen lots of different things seem to be determinative in different games of Autobahn. That, yeah. That's all I have to offer. I love Autobahn. It's like, it's like opportunity to build a gas station, but, but why would I build it now? Because I don't have the bonus when I build gas stations. If I do this other action, then I'll get the bonus for when I want to do the gas station. But then I need to do this other thing first. So it's like this one of these things where you build up like four turns in a row before you get to do what you actually want. And then someone's built a gas station in your spot so you don't get to do it anyway. <laughs> but well, no, but li like your classic quality Euro, you have these long-term plans, but you also have to be able to react to short-term, uh, uh, you know, the immediacy of what someone else has done. You know, you on the converse, you may not have any plans to build a gas station, but then somebody builds a link that makes a, a prime gas station spot available. So you're like, hmm, should I change my plan and do it? Anyway, these are what we call tactical versus strategic trade-offs. A lot of good middleweight Euros have them, and I think Audubon does, so. Moral victory because I put out all my gas stations. That is it. <laughs> you seem to have a very strong personal attachment to putting out as many gas stations well, as possible. Well, I've never put them all out in one game. That so is I, impressive. So I always I will... try. Yeah. And now that I've done it, now I can go on to other things. <laughs> Greater and better things. <laughs> Fair enough. And that is an Autobahn. <laughs> While Walker was playing Autobahn, I was playing Sidereal Confluence Bifurcation. This is the expansion to Sidereal Confluence Trading and Negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant. You started playing it, and then you explained the name of the game, and then the gaming day was over. <laughs> More or less. So, Sidereal Confluence is the heavily asymmetric science fiction game with nominally three to nine players, but really probably you want at least four. That is almost exclusively trading. And trading your green cubes for your brown cubes, or your brown cubes for your white cubes, or maybe even several white cubes for your blue cubes. And yeah, that sounds terribly boring, and something you've done a million times before. But let me assure you, this is absolutely the way to do it. It is a remarkable design. And what Bifurcation did was offer an alternate version of each of the nine heavily asymmetric factions in the base game. So now there are 18 heavily asymmetric factions. I got to play the Kitzer Kitriddle Technophiles. The Kitzer Kitriddle in the base game are a series of sapient inse insectoid creatures who have a very, very strange view of moral responsibility that I could elaborate on, but I won't because Walker will lose patience, and who have a strange alternate deck of cheap colonies because the way they do fast and light travel is they hurdle themselves into a sun and they accidentally pop out somewhere that they can't anticipate. 
The Technophiles, on the other hand, have a similar but different deck of technologies that they can license out to other alien races. It's cheaper for them to invent than, than the kit because basically there are these things where the kits say, well, we have this idea. We don't really know how to finish it, but you think differently than we do. Maybe you'll have better luck. And it's, it encourages deal-making like all good negotiation games do, but at the same time allows you to trigger your own abilities if you're so inclined and want to pay for it. The other great thing about Citadel Confluence is that every economy feels different. And reacting to those shifting economies can be the key to success. So, for example, in our game, yellow cubes were borderline useless. Nobody really had much use for yellow cubes. The same was true of brown cubes for much of the game until very near the end, when someone invented social exodus, and suddenly brown cubes were very much in demand. As I say, figuring out what the economy looks like, reacting to when that economy shifts... One of the many excellent elements of Stereo Confluence, I loved being able to explore the wacky changes that the expansion races have to offer. I'm very much looking forward to trying the Society of Falling Light. The Society of Falling Light, unlike all the other factions, don't really think this whole civilization thing is a good idea. It was largely a mistake, and maybe we never should have come down from the trees. And so they have a very, very different approach to, co uh, to cooperation. And I, I'm curious to give them a try. But then again, I always want to go back to the races I've already played, Space Whales for Life, and try new ones as well. I think uh, Studio Confluence and maybe Spirit Island use the same name AI generator to get their faction names, maybe. <laughs> I, will, I, I will grant you that they're both strikingly original in terms of the way they use language, but I would say in very, very, very different ways. Spirit Island has almost a poetry to it, whereas Citadel Confluence just has uh, an appealing sort of uh, verbose clunkiness that I quite appreciate. And I mean that as a compliment. So that was Citadel Confluence Bifurcation, designed by Tausity Dykeman. WizKids has produced both the base game, the revised edition, and the expansion, and the expansion was put out last year. So Mark and I return to For What Remains. This is designed by Paul Lowe, David Thompson, Ricardo Manuel Luis Tomas, and put out by Dan Versen Games. Dan Versen, who makes games for Dan Versen Games. And it is a skirmish game with tokens and you sort of bag build because every you make a army of units probably from three till to six and each of those units will have a stack of three tokens and because you have six units you get to choose six of these tokens to put into a bag and then the opponent does the same and then you draw all of the chits from the bag and that's the activation for the units so back and forth not sort of Warhammer all of one side, then all of the other side, things that we enjoy. And I then, don't enjoy Warhammer. Don't be putting words in my and mouth, And then sir. you must, and then and then those chits stay to the side, because for your next turn, you can only use the chits you have left. Once they go into the bag, then you get the ones back from the previous turn to go back into your pool. So it's this figuring out which units you need to to activate if you have units that healed you put a bunch of those units in and try to get them pulled you know before that unit gets damaged because it also has this interesting sort of stacking system for wounds you know you're going to have either is it basic for is a basic recruit could, veteran and yeah, elite. recruit veteran elite so you could have you know three stacks which could be uh six hit points because you flip anyway i'm not gonna go through the whole rules <laughs> fantastic skirmish game glad we got back to it one of the best it is one of those instances where I think randomness really improves the quality of decision making, right? So in a context where you just activate units one after the other, there's a certain determinism to that. There's a certain certainty. But in the case of For What Remains, as the round begins, you know, you look at that heavily damaged unit that's exposed to enemy fire. 
do you load the bag with activation tokens of that unit and try to get them out of dodge? Do you try to load the bag so that they get off a parting shot before they die? Or do you give them up for lost because you don't want to take the risk of that activation token coming after they've already been killed and instead focus elsewhere? Or have you built an army with the flexibility that you can pass off orders from one to the next and you don't have to worry about that? So, you know, it feeds into the army composition. It feeds into decisions you make about activating the units. It feeds into the decisions you make about seeding the unit activation bag. Chit pull system, I've been saying it before, has been used in war games for a long time. I wish it was used more often. I think a well-done chit pull system is a great great way to have an activation sequence. And if you have abilities that manipulate the sequence of chit pulls as a number of special units in For What Remains do, that just adds yet more delicious opportunities for doing fun and interesting things. Uh, the only knock that I have against For What Remains is the distribution model. I mean, DVG Games, very, very niche wargaming publisher, and their boxes tend to be somewhat expensive as it is. And to get all six factions, you need to buy three boxes. And at that point, that's a lot of cash. Yeah, each box is is a standalone game. It is. And it comes with two factions. So technically, you only need one box. It's true. But you're going to be playing the same two factions against each other. Yes. And so I guess you could try get that to see if you like it. And then if you like it, then start getting the other boxes. And for what it's worth, that's exactly what happened with us. We got a review copy of one of the base game boxes, and then I immediately went out and bought the other two because I was sufficiently impressed. And this is and and none of this is even acknowledging the extremely well done solo system with an incredibly simple and yet very engaging AI system for all the different factions and special scenarios. We just played the basic kill them all scenario, but there are still aspects of going and trying to get objects from the terrain. I made a number of very, very poor decisions. You know, one of those things that was obvious in hindsight, like, you know, maybe the one that is carrying the victory point ought not to then subject themselves to a suicide attack. But no, no, I decided to have them do both. My most fragile unit went and picked up the victory point and I said, haha, that'll be safe. And then I'm like, oh, but then I could move them over there. <laughs> in the middle of all the units and have them explode, right, kind of. Right in front of the dangerous enemy mech with large caliber cannons. You know, that made perfect sense. Anyway, I really appreciate the fact that it's a, a relatively simple and straightforward tactical skirmish system that's layered with an interesting activation sequence and a whole bunch of fun special abilities. Quite frankly, that's what I'm looking for in a tactical skirmish game. For what remains, huge fan. And as you lose units, that diminishes how many chits you get into the bag this whole thing that sort of reflects on how you build your army. Check it out. We got a review copy of the expansion to Cosmic Frog. Cosmic Frog was our game of the year when it was released, and Cosmic Frog now has an expansion called Find Muck. What Find Muck introduces is a whole bunch of new frogs, a new way to do combat resolution through chips instead of dice, and a new manner of combat, specifically mental combat. It was funny. When I saw the title, I really thought that Muck was a frog, <laughs> like Finding Nemo, but yeah, the yeah, Cosmic yeah, Frog version? Exactly. He was like either translucent or something. It was just sure. like one of the frogs that, you know, it, anyway. Okay, question. I, How do you misplace a two-mile-high, giant, invulnerable psychic frog? Well, because it's translucent, Mark. It's one of his special abilities. I'm sorry. I'm he sorry. I was being, I, my apologies. God. I was being stupid. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I would like to also apologize to any Reina listeners, any two-mile-high, invulnerable Cosmic Frog listeners that I've offended through my ignorance. So... Uh, Jim Felia Devious Weasel Games, certainly an iconoclast in terms of game designing, and Find Muck, I really appreciated. Now, we didn't end up 
plumbing the depths of all the weirdnesses that you can experience in a session of Find Muck, but that's just because, uh, like many other Devious Weasel games, it's really so weird that you're often just grappling with what's going on, not in a confusing way, but it's just because it's so thoroughly bizarre. It's like, okay, wait. So I blast it with psychic energy, and then they disgorge a whole bunch of lands over my head, and I can snap them out of the air with my they, tongue? They purge, Mark. We must use all the regurgitation and purge. And I'm all very sorry. Great- as yes. ever, we must be accurate to the digestive systems of Two Mile High giant cosmic frogs. Yes. So they purge their gullet. Yes, they purge their gullet. <laughs> and you can snap that air, that land out of the air with your giant frog tongue. Anyhow. <laughs> I, hey, I, it's a board game. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a board game like any other. What do you think? Where are you looking at? It's weird. We are not, I think, fully sold on all the elements of the Find Muck expansion. So the chip system was divisive a little bit. Yeah, so the chip, what the chip system does is it removes the dice element. When you did combat, you rolled special colored dice, depending on if you were trained in that particular field of combat. But now it does this... I think he's trying to introduce this sort of, you know, mocking each other and telling, you know, sort of like an interaction of telling people where the things are, when it's really... Random. Yeah. It, so well, you mix up your chips and your opponent picks two to three of them. But what it does let you do is it gives certain frogs very interesting powers about taking chits from other people or manipulating chips in different ways. And I thought that was interesting. Well, there's now two versions of each frog. There's a chip version of the frog and a dice version of the frog. And I agree with you. The intent is to capture a certain kind of play that some people really seem to like. The version where you look at all your chips and then you put them face down and you point to one of them and say, this is the highest one. And then you start engaging in the mind games of which ones. We, I, I, I laid that on the rules explanation. I tried to do that as best I could in the first combat. By the second combat, everyone was just shuffling their chips face down. Oh, and well, there, I, I don't, I don't understand that. Some people seem to enjoy it. I don't know. I was I tried to get into that mindset. That's not really for us. I, I associate it with a more kind of double bluff Bruno Fiduti style of play gotcha. kind of thing, which isn't really my my idea. Now, we like bluffing when it's the entire game, but I don't know if I want a little bit of cockroach poker in my cosmic frog. Anyway, just the other elements were really, really interesting and cool, and I look forward to exploring more of those. Cosmic Frog is always good Cosmic Frog, and I have to say that the production on Fine Muck is very impressive. They crammed a lot of new material in a small box of expansion. If you haven't tried Cosmic Frog, and if you're even remotely interested in that kind of setup of game, or if you're the kind of jaded hobbyist gamer that thinks they've seen everything under the sun, I cannot recommend Cosmic Frog enough, and Fine Muck is a most interesting addition. That's by Jim Felly at Devious Weasel Games. To be published soon. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. We played Root Today by Cole Worley, published by Leader Games. We had the moles. We had the cats. We had the is it the ravens? Uh, the crows. The, the crows. And we had the lizards. All hail the lizards. And it was a very interesting game. All praise be to the great dragon. We played with the advanced setup, which I really much liked. Always enjoy Root. We don't play Root enough, I don't think. I don't think so either. Root is, I think, one of the best Troops on a Map games, uh, even though it's not really a Troops on a Map game, but it captures a lot of those elements of positioning forces and knowing when to fight and knowing when to marshal them. It does a great job of of forcing combat without any hurt feelings. Yes. 
Because you have to understand that people need to be knocked down or else they're going to win. And the targets of opportunity are transparent. I mean, that's actually one aspect that it shares with Cosmic Frog, two very, very different games. But when you end your turn with no energy and a full gullet, people are going to come attack you. Similarly, if you leave your buildings unprotected and you're in the lead, or even if you're close to the lead, that's points on the table. Someone's going to come take them. It's just it's just the nature of things. And so, if anything, our group tends to get uh, a, a little bit up in their feelings during a lot of these conflict games. But in Root and Cosmic Frog, it's hard to take anything seriously. And I have not yet had enough experience with the latest Root expansion faction, namely the Marauders and the Knights. Uh, but we have now been playing with the advanced setup rules, as you mentioned, where you draft factions from a limited set of pool. And I really, really like it that way. It prevents people from just, you know, choosing the same ones over and over or just getting free choice. And without having that weird mathematical formula that you used to have to do where the first couple people could kind of choose whoever they wanted, but then the next people could choose almost nobody. It was, it was a little strange. I understood the intention. There's this idea of a certain amount of militarism to be on the board so that people have quote unquote enough room to build. But the advanced setup rules I find to be uh, a joy and tend to cycle in the, the, the factions very neatly. Root is a wonderful game. Shame we don't play it more often. Agreed. Also played lots of Tigers and Euphrates this week. It's on Board Game Arena. Played a bunch of games with listeners. It is always a fantastic game. It is designed by Warrior and Knizia and is the best game that is out there. It is a game where... Typical Reiner Knizia style, you have two actions and you're sort of building this little civilization and people are either invading it or trying to merge it with their own and all these different intricate rules on creating a puzzle and you have to figure out how to eke out the most points from this puzzle because it's one of these scoring systems where you're going to score the lowest of four different colors. The only thing I would take issue with that is the presentation that you're trying to build a civilization. You're, you're kind of doing that, but mostly you end up feeling like a parasite because if sometimes it shakes out that someone is building their own civilization and sometimes that works. Most of the time, though, when I'm playing, the easiest way to score points is somebody else builds a bit of a civilization like, oh, they don't have anyone representing the merchants over there. I guess I'll just show up. <laughs> because it's the coexistence and the constantly fluctuating board that really does it for me in Tigers and Euphrates. Yeah, it's, it's a tiling game, but at the end of the day, it's more about managing the ebb and flow of these four different forces across four different players, if you're playing a four-player game. And I'm really glad that Board Game Arena is giving it more exposure. Shame it is not in print. And that is Tigers and Euphrates. Those are the games we played this week. And now, a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. On to the news, and why it doesn't matter. Mark, we like Avatar, The Last Airbender. There is going to be a game called Crossroads of Destiny. Whoa. It's designed by Prospero Hall. Ooh. It's a weird name. Prospero Hall. <laughs> Prospero um, Hall is a collective of designers. It's, it's going to be published by Funko Games, and it looks interesting. It's, it's uh, one of the book-type, spiral-bound map-type things, mm -hmm. and you sort of go on all these different missions and get, you can either play it as a one-off or as a campaign. There's not much information on it right now, but Avatar. Standees acrylic. Ooh. At least from the pictures. So. I love those acrylic standees. Avatar, The Last Airbender. There was a great anime I watched last season, Mark. It was called Spy versus Family. It was very much about all of the, this whole sort of brought together family and orphan and, and, and uh, a wife and a husband, and they all had 
hidden agendas at play and how they all kept those hidden. Very pleasant show. They're going to, of course, make some sort of love letter type spinoff because there's going to be a movie coming out soon called Code White. So an eminent release of the of the movie, they are going to make a little card game. And I will try to get it. Giant Monsters, everybody. The Table Battle System, which was designed by Emma Bill Holland and first published under the eponymous Table Battles. Strange, I know. And which then saw an edition for dinosaurs called Dinosaur Table Battles. Will now be about giant monsters called Kaiju Table Battles. And Amabel Holland is one of the best writers in the board game industry, and she wrote an, an amazing designer diary on Board Game Geek. It is all about identity and creativity and publication and giant monsters. Uh, link to that designer diary in the episode description. And it's also going to do some interesting, very, very, very light legacy stuff. Just envelopes of new stuff to be opened up at semi-regular intervals. I'm looking forward to seeing what's done with the system. It's it's an impressive little dice system that is pleasantly designed around denying your opponent turns, but it's quick enough so that you don't really feel locked out. And if you are locked out, it's mostly your fault. It's an interesting system. I, I, I've, I've enjoyed my, uh, my excursions with it. Currently, my preferred version is indeed Dinosaur Table Battles. But I'm looking forward to seeing what the Kaiju version has, even though I confess I don't have an independent degree of enthusiasm for the Toho giant monsters, but listening to Amabel Holland talk about them sure makes me more enthusiastic about them. <laughs> that is Kaiju Table Battle Battles to be published soon by Hollenspiel. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is credibility in crowdfunding. I don't know, man. It's rough. Th- it's rough. It's rough. It's rough. <sighs> Do you want to, do you want to start on what you look for, or do you want to start on right. what we think I other will, people? Are I will for? start off. Okay, start us off. Walker. First of all, it is crowdfunding. All right. Yes. I think people have been spoiled lately mm. because it's been more of a catalog. They say Kickstarter is not a store, but it is a store. Yes, hundred percent. And people have, especially in the, I, even t- because today I went through a bunch of other categories. I didn't look at board games. I looked at clothing. Oh, okay. I looked at music, and because I, I wanted to see how other pages looked, and they have nothing they I, yeah I, I would like to write a song <laughs> yeah all right yeah 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 and so i think people have been very spoiled when it comes to board games because they lay everything out the game is practically finished mm-hmm. there's all sorts of pictures we have like a finished prototype that's practically like a like the full game's going yep. to be yep there's pictures there's playthroughs you're pretty well just buying the game yeah it is a catalog it is a store and you're buying the game well, okay, so let's 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 distinguish between two different levels of you're basically just buying the game, right? There are instances where companies and sometimes people who've never published a game before in their lives have the glitziest crowdfunding pages imaginable, and one genuinely gets the impression, or in point of fact, they need the crowdfunding money in order to publish the thing. And then there's Queen Games, not to pick on Queen Games in particular. But I don't know how Queen Games operates, but one genuinely gets the impression that they're just running it as a storefront, and the game is going to get published regardless, and they're just using Kickstarter as a pre-order system that gives them free publicity. Because I've heard from publishers before, off the record, that the reason why Kickstarter, GameFound, all of them really, have such an inexorable pull isn't even just the interest-free loan, although they probably appreciate that too, but, you know, at the end of the day, Kickstarter eats up so much in, in, in fees. The reason why it makes sense is because of the free advertising. 
because that's where board game media tends to focus. And, you know, you get all the banner ads and the kick track and the whatever. I don't know if kick track is still in business. Uh, the oh, Gibbon, we're, not, you're not, we're not using it anymore. I mean, the, so obviously well, the, it must have fallen off. The Gibbons don't use it. I don't know how much of their traffic was driven by Gibbons at any point. But So I hear you, but I think that there's two different versions of it's a store. In the context where... And I, I, this is a well-taken point, and we should return to it. In the context where the indie publisher who needs your money nonetheless has all of this stuff that would not exist in other forms of crowdfunding, I, I respect your characterization of that as a store. But to my mind, it's a little bit different than people like, say, Queen, who are definitely going to publish it regardless. It's true. But I've, like I said, you've seen other. There are even there are board games that are out there. I'd like to make this game. I have an idea. Yeah, it's going to have a minotaur in it and yeah. and, and a bowl of cereal. <laughs> that's how. That's and, it, how... And, it's, and it goes up, and that's it. Yeah. And do they fund? Sometimes because they have they have realistic funding goals of right. fifty dollars. Well, that's the thing. So, funding goals are one of those areas where Kickstarter has lost all the credibility for me, because increasingly you set a funding goal just to say that you met your funding goal. Yeah, I, that's what I mean. There was a, a statement today I had to write down. Barely cracking the twenty thousand dollar goal is underperforming, no matter how you look at it. Right in the first day. Yeah. And sure, but the the, the tragedy is, it, I, I understand why it happens, because the tragedy is if you set a realistic funding goal, say you actually need a couple hundred thousand dollars to publish the thing. I don't know. That may even be true. Let's even stipulate that it's true. The odds of that being funded are far less than if you set a funding goal of 10 grand, and then you might get the 200 grand you needed after all. It's a weird sort of feedback loop. Well, and it all goes towards the algorithms that Kickstarter uses. 100%. Because I went through a bunch of videos and documentation on how to have a successful Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And they all said the same thing. You must double your goal in the first day or else it is an unsuccessful thing. Yeah. And and it just doesn't make any sense. It's it's not what a goal is. Right. Yeah. I, I regret the fact. I commented on this before in the context of Guards of Atlantis 2. And generally speaking, the output of Wolf Designer and other publishers, a whole lot of publishers will say on the Kickstarter page, if you do not buy or GameFound, whatever. I'm, I'm going to occasionally use Kickstarter to just stand in for crowdfunding. But crowdfunding, of course, yes. is a more complicated picture. Other than BackerKit, which is still kind of the one that's bringing up the, re- the rear and is much less glitzy as a rule. GameFound and Kickstarter are more or less interchangeable in a lot of ways. Sometimes even Indiegogo, although they're used less often. Crowdfunding, uh, crowdfunding pages often say, you know, buy it here. This may be the only way to get it. There's a lot of work going on in that word may. And so when publishers like Wolf Design and say, no, 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 we mean it. If you do not buy it from crowdfunding, you will not be able to get it. And then after the, the campaign is over and people are like, well, we're, I, I, I want to get the game. I can't. It's like, look, we told you. The problem is, is that so many other publishers have said that and they didn't mean it. And so the people who actually mean it aren't believed. It's unfortunate. Yeah, that sort of ties into another part where you must have a, have a salesperson or someone with some sort of sales background answering, replying to all the comments and questions. Oh, about geez. Yeah. Right. And that, that sort of loops into what you said. Have clear yes or no answers. Right. Yep. None of this him hawing or ambiguous or, you know, just say, well, yep. that's just the way it is. Which gets us further and further from some sort of ideal about what crowdfunding could have been. Look, I am perfectly okay with people running 
Kickstarter campaigns that are in violation of some sort of pure ideal. But in theory, Kickstarter should be lowering the barriers of entry for a whole bunch of people who want to have creative ideas in the board game space, board game space, and put more things in front of my board game face. But as it is, in order to launch a quote unquote successful campaign, the things that you appear to need in order to be viewed as credible consist of, as you say, somebody managing a community, right? You need a moderator to, to, to manage community comments, at least on the page itself, possibly in three other venues, you know, Board Game Geek, a Discord, whatever, you name it, on uh, social media. And you need a whole bunch of paid, glitzy, promotional nonsense from a whole bunch of people with no actual editorial rigor, some of whom have been around for a few years and are no, the known pay-to-play operators. You know exactly who I'm talking about. And some of them are people you've never heard of before and will probably never hear from again. Preferably two or three, ideally something like six, right? Yeah, that's the weird thing I heard this week was I never watch those guys to this week. Yeah. Where are your paid... Where are your paid videos I so am I can willing to see bet these things? That a certain number of people don't watch them either, but just scroll past and see them, and it sort of just accumulates and accretes into some sort of vision of credibility. On top of that, you need to you need to pay Paul Grogan or you need to uh, to pay Rodney Smith to do a, a rules explanation video. On top of that, you need a finally final a finalized rule book with graphics and everything. You need to have custom banner graphics on your Kickstarter page. You need to have animated gifs or gifs, whatever you want to. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna touch that controversy. Showing the components moving by themselves. Well, here's another line that was from that was drawn out of that. How to have a successful your campaign your campaign page look like a children's book, i.e. all pictures. Oh wow, that's so true. Any text. That's yes, so true. All pretty pictures. That's a, that's a really good characterization. My point is, all of this costs, right? These are the expensive things that a publisher used to front. Right. Exactly. It used to be the case that you showed up to a publisher. And again, I'm not trying to say that there was some golden age. The old publishing model had a whole bunch of institutional and built in obstacles for a lot of people. And a lot of them were non-white, non-cis. You know, like, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of virtues to some of the things that crowdfunding has done. But it used to be that the expectation was that the glitz and polish would come much later from the publisher once they decided that your game was good. In an ideal world, that's. That, that, that was kind of the way that, that, that it worked. Now, of course, the ideal was a long way from reality. Did some people show up with glitzy prototypes and sometimes that gave them a leg up? I'm sure. But my word, if I had a genuine idea for uh, a, a board game that I wanted to crowdfund, I wouldn't know where I'd begin to get the money I would need to crowdfund in the first place because of all this graphic design and other stuff you need to do. It's amazing. I don't understand how anyone does it. I do want to get back to the salesperson replying to comments. Sure. Because this person needs to be outside of your circle as well. Because what I've seen in a lot of projects is uh, the people replying are sort of in a bubble. True. They, they know their friends want this game. They know all of their friends have said it's a great game. Yep. All of the private discords that they're in and Facebook groups, they're all hyped for this. So the replies have been like, don't worry, it's a great game. Right. Or things like that. Right. Hon honestly, the Walker, I agree. And it's a pressing problem. That is just a microcosm of board game media writ large. Right. It's driven by enthusiasm by enthusiasts who typically have or seek close friendships or social relationships with people in the industry. I, I that and I think that's fine. But when you're Is it? But when you're replying to <laughs> when you're replying to people out of the bubble, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it comes off as as 
insincere. Well, this, okay. Well, this leads us to the first thing that generates credibility for me as a user, right? I'm not, first of all, I just want to flag right off the bat. I am not claiming to be immune from any of these sales tactics, right? The person who never watches those paid advertorials, but might surreptitiously or subconsciously afford them some degree of credibility by virtue of the fact that they exist, that may well be me. I'm wondering, like, when they're not there, why aren't they there? Exactly. I try not to do that, but I can't claim that it, that I'm never that. Because, of course, everyone is going to tell you that marketing doesn't work on them. Every single human being on Earth, or nearly everyone's like, oh, yeah, marketing doesn't work on me. Well, clearly there's a large number of people who think that marketing doesn't work on them, and marketing does work on them. Anyway, setting that aside. What I want in terms of a Kickstarter for a hobbyist, especially Euro-style board game of light, medium, or heavier weight is I want you to tell me what is different about this thing from other things, right? Because we see, we talk about this on Pledge of Indifference all the time. It's like, oh, this is a Euro tableau building game. It's like, well, great. Why don't you... Why don't you tell me, do it in an animated GIF. I don't care. Do it somewhere, but somewhere near the top of the page, a line or two, it doesn't always have to be focused exclusively, from, but somewhere near the top, tell me what makes this different from every other t Euro Tableau building game that I pay, played for the past 10 years. That's what I have here. What is the key mechanism? Yeah. Yeah. Get, well, uh, I, I actually think of it in terms of a classic Walker demand. What's the hook? What's the hook? Yep. Because the, the hook doesn't have to be mechanical. The hook could be something about the components or something graphically, right? Sure. But I would like some degree of emphasis on the crowdfunding pain to acknowledge very much in the same way. It's kind of the same focus that we had when we started so very wrong about games, right? Because when we're talking about games, they exist in a context. And part of that context is other games that are available that do same or similar things. And when you're going through 12 to 20 crowdfunding campaigns over the course of a couple of weeks just as a consumer or hobbyist, they all start to bleed together. So please give me some reason why this and not that. And anybody that is willing to frame their campaign in those terms immediately from me gets a certain vote of credibility because I know they're trying to speak to my wants and desires. The other thing that they have to have is you have to make it clear what is included. You have all these Kickstarter campaigns that you have the the Imperial Pledge yes. and, and the Undertow Pledge and the <laughs> Uprising Pledge. And you have like, you know, 15 different things to choose from. And you have to yes. be very clear what is in every one. And if it's a certain box, you need to know exactly what is in that box. Yeah. It's only gotten more complicated recently because back in the day, stretch goals were just stretch goals. Now you don't have just stretch goals. You have stretch goals that are, in fact, new add-ons. And sometimes you have three different tracks of stretch goals. Like, oh, well, you know, in the basic pledge, you get the basic stretch goals. If you get the deluxe pledge, you get the deluxe stretch goals and the basic stretch goals. If you get the executive pledge, you get the executive stretch goals and the basic stretch goals, but not the deluxe stretch goals. Anyway. No, no. <laughs> and of course not. Don't be foolish. And in terms of credibility for me, uh, that just you know blows uh, a certain degree of credibility for me as a consumer largely by virtue of the fact that if you expect me to be doing that much mental effort to figure out what all these add-ons are, I'm just going to check out. Now, is it fair for me to then think less of the company and the people publishing it? Not even remotely, but this is kind of like the inverse of, of marketing working on me. This is like anti-marketing. And so lastly, for me anyway, is throughout all these things that I watched about making a good Kickstarter was the word trust. Mm -hmm. You need to build trust with the people that look at your page. If they don't trust your project, then they will not back it. I really appreciate it when 
two things are kind of centered in the campaign, not necessarily at the top of the page, usually at the bottom, but a lot of it is about tone, is I, I'd like to hear about the, the, the people and what they've done before. I, I understand fully that often publishers don't want to acknowledge the existence of other board games. But, you know, if you're going to be crowdfunding a game by Fabio Lopiano, I don't care if you didn't publish Autobahn or Kalamala. But me- you might want to mention that he designed Kalamala and Autobahn, right? And co-designed in the case of, of Autobahn. Again, if you do that, if you're willing to a- acknowledge the existence of other games... That says that you're speaking to me, and it says to me that you care about this as a creative work, independently as a mark of commerce. If you just care about commerce, you're never going to acknowledge that other publishers exist. But if you are willing to acknowledge other publishers, that goes a long way. Same thing with the artists. You know, It's so weird that the a lot of Kickstarter campaigns spend so much time putting up a lot of pictures and moving pictures of the artwork in the game that they've already commissioned, but don't spend a lot of time talking about the artists themselves. A lot of campaigns do. A lot of campaigns, you know, they put a portrait of the artist and they say, you know, grew up in X, has designed blah, 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 loves board games, whatever. That I appreciate. And then the same thing is true of the company itself. And it's weird. Uh, So let's finally acknowledge the phantom in the room. So... (laughs) Phantom Division uh, canceled its uh, GameFound campaign this week and plans to relaunch. So they they canceled after meeting their funding goal in one day. But they decided that there were a variety of concerns that had been raised about the campaign itself. And they obviously didn't get the response they wanted. And one of the things that I found shocking, or at least very, very surprising, was... People were saying things, pointing out faults in the campaign, like, why is there no gameplay video? Why is there no rules explanation video? Why is there no video from somebody you paid $7,500 to, to, to make a good video of? Whatever. That's fine, whatever. If you want those things, you can want those things. I don't, but if you want them, that's fine. But they used that as a reason to conclude, and I saw this comment so many times, this makes me think that this might not ever fulfill or maybe is a scam. I'm like, dude... This is Elzra. They're not the biggest company in the world, but they've never, ever done anything shady with their past campaigns. Sure, they've been late, but not by, like, years. And they've got several successful games under their belt, a successful product line that's that's constantly uh, p- putting out expansions. Say what you want about the campaign, but there was nothing there, I think, to give anyone a red flag in terms of trust. But because the campaign page wasn't glitzy enough, a whole bunch of people thought it might be a scam. Conversely, somebody who has web design skills, enough graphic design skills in a dream, who's never published anything before, can put out a glitzy page, and some a lot of people might pass, but you get only a fraction of the people saying like, oh, I don't know, this might not ever fulfill. It boggles the mind. Yeah, there was that, remember that one that was a... Uh... That was centered in the Middle East. Remember, it was like Simbad, and they had 3D renders of all the models and buildings and all of this other stuff, and it was all just nothing. Smoke and mirrors. It was all just a scam. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, it's unfortunate that that the Kickstarter page itself, it's all just marketing all the way down. It's just, it's dispiriting, to be frank. Even as somebody who who believes in, in, in the power of good marketing. It's like the, we, we've gotten to the point now where the glitziness of the page itself confers credibility. The medium has fully become the message as far as crowdfunding is concerned. It's desperately unfortunate. Now, and part of this is because publishers don't really have track records anymore. You know, back in the day, and again, I'm not saying this is better. There's no golden age nonsense. 
I remember back when I started the hobby, there were basically three publishers. <laughs> you know, Steve Jackson Games was churning out Munchkin, all that stuff like that. You had Mayfair and you had Rio Grande. That was more or less it. And then, of course, you could do war games if you wanted to do war games. But no one was concerned that Rio Grande was going to run away with your money. <laughs> I don't get it. Well, since we actually brought up Fan Division, there was a couple things, too. They they were sent their prototype version, and part of the prototype did oh, yeah. not show up. Yeah, yeah. There, there are reasons for all these things. And then yes, second, yes, yes. they were in the middle of editing the, the yeah. campaign page to add more stuff when GameFound just launched it. Because they're more used to Kickstarter, and yeah. so all of the changes they had made yeah. were just gone. So, And make no mistake, I understand why some people didn't want to pledge because the campaign page was missing X, Y, or Z. We are in a somewhat different position. We are amongst the few who've had the opportunity to enjoy the only game that matters, Seal Team Flicks. And so, honestly, if Elzra, if the Elzra campaign ca- uh, page had been an ASCII text that just said, Elzra wants to produce the next dexterity slash tactical game by Pete Ruth and Mark Thomas, and I would have given them almost any amount of money. In full confidence, because the publisher is solid, and the designers have done good work, and we've played the the, the 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 previous game, and we know it's amazing. That would have done it for me. That's all the credibility I needed. But of course, I completely respect that we're in a somewhat unique position. It's a shame. Partially, this is just all a shame because Wiz, Wiz Kids, through a series of weird combinations of things, didn't market and push Seal Team Flicks the way that it ought to have been pushed. But. No, Mar- market credibility, man. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Crowdfunding has become something different. Where in some cases, you know, I mean, you it, it all depends on what you're trying to do. If you are trying to advertise to your core audience that you know you already have, then yes. Yeah. That is, that's true. You're that's right. legit. You're right. If you are trying to bring in new people, then you better step it up a little bit. It's true. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. I highly recommend the website. It is excellent. Nine out of ten gibbons agree. And the last one has bad taste. We read everything you send to us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you again for tuning in and for deciding to spend some time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>